Well, I'm really glad to be here tonight. Um, I was about six inches from not being here tonight. And what I mean by that is about two hours ago, I was driving through campus and I almost hit a girl with my car. Um, But it turned out okay. Uh, I don't know how it happened. Uh, She wasn't even wearing camouflage, so I don't know. Um, Let's see. (laughs) And to say that, Tonight's passage is about humility. Um, I know I don't deserve to be here. Um, I know I'm not perfect. And um, yeah, I just don't deserve to be here. I'm just another man. And reading through this passage this week, it really showed me um, who I am and who Christ is because this passage today is about um, who Jesus is who he was, who he became, and who he is now, and what he did for us. And Paul uses it for um, a reason to the Philippians to help them to understand what it means to be humble. Um, last year, or last week, last year, um, Tyson preached about being united in Jesus. He preached verses one through four and um, about being or having a selfless ambition, not a selfish ambition. And he's talking about ambition being this striving after something, this desire for something. And we so commonly desire things that are our own, desire selfless, selfish things. Um, Because it's our nature, it's who we are as human beings. So Paul is calling the Philippians to have a selfless ambition. And tonight we're going to go into what is known as the Christ hymn. It is verses 6 through 11, but we'll be talking about verses 5 through 11 tonight. Um, it is, it was probably a creedal statement, a statement that the early church would have used during services as a form of worship. They would say this hymn together as a church And it would be a reminder um, of what Jesus did and uh, this pure example of humility. And then Paul includes a letter to give the church an example to live by. Um, He says, a little higher to complete my joy by being of the same mind, um, having the same love, being in full accord, and to count others as more significant than themselves. And what is the best way to get the body to count others as more significant than themselves or um, to be of one mind and to understand uh, what it means to think of others as if they're greater is to show them that Jesus, their Lord, whom they, they look to for everything, they, is this highest example. They want to be just like Jesus. Um, they are Christians, little Christs. So... He shows them the example of Christ, and he's the perfect example. And the hymn itself is set up in kind of a V-shape, going starting from the top, going down, and then coming back up. It starts with Christ being in glory, coming down, crucified on the cross, and then goes back to glory. He's exalted. <clears throat> so we're going to read verses 1 through 11 because you have to understand verses 1 through 4 to understand verses 5 through 11. 
So Philippians 2, verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here comes the hymn. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in verse five, you see he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, other translations might say um, this form, this, this mind of Christ, which is also in Christ Jesus instead of which is yours in Christ Jesus, this mindset that was with Christ Jesus. And what is having, what does he mean by having this mind? Like this way of thinking, this way of seeing the world and the way of seeing yourself in God. It's kind of like a worldview. I took um, worldview class over the summer and um, I learned a lot about different worldviews. And this is just the way that you see the world, the way that you see and interact with everything that's around you. And we know that because of our worldview as Christians, we see different things the way differently than the way non-believers see things. We disagree on a lot of things because we have different worldviews. It comes from the very beginning of what is really real. <clears throat> so, Paul's speaking of the same mind. And what kind of mind should we have? Because we're all supposed to have the same exact mind, but what is that mind? What, is he, what does he want from us? And it's kind of like an analogy where glasses, we use glasses to get a certain sight. You may be far-sighted, you may be near-sighted, you, are, um, you just can't see the way that we know we're supposed to see. That's where we get glasses and we all see a certain way because everything becomes clear. This, uh, this hymn, this example of Christ is Paul's way of saying that this is the way that you're supposed to see the world. Have this mind among yourselves. This is where you should see everything. You need to, some of you are seeing it wrong way on one end and wrong way on the other end. We need to have this mind. We need to see this way. You need to put on your glasses. It's time to see what Jesus did for us. And then imitation, because he's saying to imitate Christ, basically, by having this mind. Imitation is a theme throughout Philippians in a couple of different places. One of them would be um, chapter three, verse 17, where he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's telling the Philippians to imitate him because he knows that he's imitating Christ. 
So he knows that if they imitate him, then he'll be getting, or that they will be getting closer to what Christ is like because he is Christ-like. And so um, we get to the beginning of the hymn in verse six, this, um, this mindset that he wants them to see. It says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we'll go on to seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so it says right here in the beginning, who though was in the form of God, he was God. Jesus is God at all times. And in order to understand the way God or Jesus came down and became man and the significance of that dissension, we have to understand God or Jesus in his former glory before he came. So a good example of that would be Isaiah 6. If you want to see that passage, um, it's a great one. Everyone should know it. In Isaiah 6, it starts off like this. In the year that King Uzziah uh, died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, which two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we see God in the Old Testament um, Isaiah's there, he's seeing this, he's writing it for us. God is high and lifted up. He is on a throne. His robe is filling the temple, symbolizing his conquering power, his sovereignty, his how great he is. And then there's um, seraphim flying around, calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You have this amazing scene here. Isaiah, in response, um, probably drops to his knees, says, woe is me, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips from unclean people. And we see that God, or Jesus before he came, was God and he was receiving the glory that he deserved. And he was very high and lifted up. And so... When we see that he comes down, we see and realize that he comes down a significant level in his humiliation. So the NIV or the ESV in, the, in this continuation of this verse says, um, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped in, six, in verse six. NIV says um, something to be used to his own advantage which is a little bit easier to understand. Um, grasped is also good, but um, we'll look at that. And we see him, um, we see him when he comes down using his attributes, his godly attributes, as uh, an advantage for others and not for his own sake. Um, whenever Jesus comes down, he still has his godly attributes because if he gives up his godly attributes then he is no longer God and he remains deity. Um, if he did not remain deity then it would be contrary to the rest of the Bible such as 
uh, Colossians 1, uh, beginning of John, different places it talks about Jesus being God, fully God, and not partially God or just man with no God or anything like that. He was God. So he had these godly attributes. And when he came down, he did not count them um, being with God or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken advantage of. So he didn't use these things for his advantage. We see him using them for others' advantages, like when he's healing or when he's feeding the multitudes, the 5,000, whenever he is being the perfect sacrifice for us. And then we see him being tempted by Satan in wilderness to use his, his godliness, his godly attributes for his own advantage when um, he could have changed the rocks to bread. He could have called the angels to help him and he could have just quit this whole thing from the very beginning. He could have dropped it and said that I don't want to do this anymore. He could have had anything he wanted at any time because he was God and yet he did not use him for his own advantage but for the advantage of others. And then... In Romans 15, 1 through 3, we see something that is really similar. Similar. Romans 15, where is it at? There it is. 1 through 3 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. So we see that Jesus did not please himself, but it also uses Jesus as an example that we should not please ourselves, but we should please others in order to build them up. And again, it uses, Paul uses Christ as an example for this and how he did not use his godly attributes for his own advantage. And so then in Philippians, we get to verse 7, which has been widely debated. Um, I didn't know, whenever I signed up for this passage, I thought that it was going to be really easy because it's such a popular passage about Jesus that everyone knows. But there's a lot of Trinitarian debate in this passage, and this will be one of them, it's the emptied himself debate, because it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Um, The older ESV and the NIV say made himself nothing instead of emptied himself, because the Greek word kenosis means to empty or deprive of content or to be made nothing, in other words. According to Rodney Decker, who is an assistant professor of New Testament at Baptist Bible Seminary, the best way to translate the word would be made nothing because other times in the New Testament when Paul uses kenosis, he is using it in that kind of sense, to be made nothing, to deprive of content. And so he would say that it's the same thing here. Either way, it is safe to say that Christ did not lose any of his divine attributes because I mean he would no longer God. So Christ emptied himself by becoming what he was not already, according to a Desiring God article Jonathan Parnell said. And so he became flesh, he hid his glory, he became a servant, and we were reminded that a servant would be deprived of rights. 
a servant would be someone who didn't hold any kind of rights, who didn't have no standing. So in the sense of God or Jesus humbling himself he, and becoming nothing, he became a servant. He hid his glory and in that losing some rights while keeping his divine attributes. So we see that Jesus became a servant and it's the best example of that or I would say the best example would be John 13 whenever he washes the disciples' feet. We see the Lord of glory, the Lord most high, uh, the Isaiah 6 Lord coming down and being amongst the disciples and taking the form of a servant in washing the disciples' feet, the nastiest part of a person that day. He goes around, Simon gives him a hard time about it, but he gives us an amazing example of how we should react to others and how we should serve others. And Paul points to that in the hymn when he says that Jesus became a servant and born in the likeness of men. And this idea of emptying yourself or making yourself nothing, becoming a servant, um, is very contrary to our culture. Because we want to say we have rights, we deserve this, we deserve that, we've done all these great things, we're good, hard worker, we deserve, or I deserve this raise for working so hard. But um, this is pretty contrary because it's becoming, it's, it's taking, we, the world thinks that we should make much of ourselves and, and do these awesome things. Even our flesh says that. I mean, that's natural for us. But Jesus says, no, this is all wrong. You become a servant and you treat others as if they are greater than yourself. And the world doesn't like that. And it's not going to be attractive to the world at all. People are not going to, a lot of people just don't come into the church and don't accept um, the faith because they don't want to give up anything. They don't want to give themselves up. And this is really seen in missions as well. Um, the team's leaving tomorrow to go to Mexico. And it is an example of emptying yourself, emptying themselves. They are depriving themselves of certain things in this world. They're spending money and all these things to go over to another country to share the gospel with people they would never see otherwise. And they're so far off and they're outside our boundaries of America. Most would say that is ridiculous. And a quote from that book that we just read with um, Jim Elliott in it, all the famous missionaries, 10 Who Changed the World, um, it says in a letter that Jim Elliott wrote November 1st, 1948, he says this, is awesome. He says, as a prayer, pour out my life as an oblation or offering. Pour out my life as an offering for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. He clearly understood Philippians 2. He clearly understood that Jesus poured out his life for us and he shed his blood for us. And so Jim Elliott left everything. He uh, left his life behind. He went to school. He even did wrestling just to be prepared for the mission field. He did all these awesome things and said, pour my life out 
praying to the Lord, and he did pour his life out, literally his blood on the beach and on an island to the heathens. So does this mean all of us should just go and go to a foreign nation and pour our lives out for those savages far away? No, it doesn't. But maybe more of us should. And we see that humility is decisive. It's going from self-serving to serving others. It's choosing to do this. The humility of Christ was decisive, and we see that in verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It says, He humbled himself. Uh, No one can humble Jesus. You see, people humble others when they make you realize that you're not as great as you thought you were. They humble you. But who can humble Jesus? No one can make Jesus know that he's not as great as he thinks he is. He's definitely great as he thinks he is. He is the Lord over all. He is the greatest. There's nothing better than him. Nothing can humble him. So he had to humble himself by emptying himself in that way. And we don't realize how weak and in need that we are. We don't realize it. We are so prone to think we're okay, that we've got it ourselves, but Jesus died because we don't have it ourselves. Um, We see in this passage humble obedience. Um, Jesus looked to our interests and God's interests in his obedience. It says humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we know that in his death, in his death on the cross, it was done so that he can save us and bring a people to himself. And later we'll find, it says, for the glory of God the Father. And this humility or consideration of others is humility and it's obedience, it's humble obedience. And this humble obedience is also seen in Luke twenty-two forty-two, and the passage that Josh preached on the day where he says, not my will, but yours be done. Um, this is a crazy prayer. It's insane. It's, do we ever actually pray this prayer? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Is it even an option for us? Um, we usually just do what we want. We don't even have concern for the will of the Lord. We just make decisions, just do what we feel like we should just I mean, do. You don't have to inquire about it. And this not my will but yours be done is a dangerous prayer. Indeed, it is the, because the, Lord, the Lord's will is typically not a comfortable avenue. It's not going to be comfortable at all. It takes courage, as Josh said. It takes courage to pray the prayer, not my will but yours be done, and to go and do exactly what Jesus wants us to do and what he's called us to do all throughout Scripture in many different verses that, um, that we usually just look over in many situations and in our lives and how we live. We could take many of these verses very seriously, but we can look over them sometimes because it's hard. So it says that he humbled himself to the point of death, but even death on a cross... And that is saying even death on a cross 
because it's just such a hard death. It's, it was the worst death. It was a death of criminals. Um, it was thought out. It was very thought out so that it could be a really horrible death. Uh, the Romans were serious about making the criminals feel an insane amount of pain. And it says also somewhere else in the Bible that cursed is he who is nailed to a tree. And Jesus was cursed in this situation, of course. And the thing is, if anyone didn't deserve to be crucified, it was Jesus. He was the only man who ever lived a perfect life. And this is an amazing example of humility because the cross was a place for criminals to go, those who have transgressed some form of law, and Jesus is the only one that's never transgressed any laws. He's never, he's never sinned in any way. So Jesus was the one who had the right to say, I don't deserve this. I deserve this, I deserve that, I deserve that. I don't deserve the cross. And yet, he went to the cross. And he lived the perfectly righteous life, but we are given the reward instead. We are given this righteousness um, that was not our own. And it reminds me of that song, Why should I gain from this reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And then after the being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 9 starts the exaltation of Christ. He is exalted here after his death and his humiliation. It says, therefore, therefore, because he did this, he was humbly obedient and died and as a sinless man, as an example for all. Uh, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus did not, he died, but did he not stay dead? After three days, he came back, and he came back exalted. When Jesus rose from the grave, it was all done. He was exalted the Lord. He was getting ready to go back up, sit back on the throne where he was beforehand. And this Jesus lived perfectly. He humbled himself to obedience. He died on the cross. He was exalted. And Jesus knew that this humility was the path to righteousness. We see it all throughout the scripture that those who humble themselves will be exalted and Jesus definitely humbled himself in this passage. And then when he was risen, he was exalted. And we see this in Luke twenty-two, twenty-four through 30. An example. In Luke 22, they, the disciples have a dispute amongst themselves. And we know it well as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them in verse 25 of chapter 22, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one, 
or one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we see here that he kind of, he, he just makes a whole shift on the way that people think about what is great. Because who is typically the greater one? The one who reclines at table. And then the lesser ones serve. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus is obviously the greatest. There's nothing greater than Jesus. And he shows them an example. And they, they should know this. They should know how great he is. And he says that he's the one that serves. So now the disciples have a completely different understanding of, or they're probably confused, really, of what is great. And then he actually makes a reference of the kingdom and being signed, assigned a place to drink at the table and thrones that they will judge the tribes because they have stayed with him in his trials. Probably because they have humiliated themselves and they have born an example as he has. So, there are other examples within Scripture about humiliation being rewarded. And there's two I've got from the Old Testament. Uh, Psalms 138, or Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So the Lord, he admits, is high. He's high, higher than anything we can understand, higher than the sky. But he regards the lowly. He thinks about them. He considers the lowly, those who are humble. And he makes the contrast. But the haughty, he knows from afar. He just, he sees them. He, he knows the lowly up close. He regards them. But the haughty, he lets, he almost like he lets them be lets them to their ways. They want to be prideful. They want to think that they can do everything in their own power. He lets them to it, and he sees how far they can get, and it won't be far. Even if they have successful riches in this world, it will surely crumble. All things go down eventually. Okay, and then in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we see here, again, Jesus is the one, or God is the one high and lifted up who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. And he is with those who are contrite and have a lowly spirit. He's with them. And then in Matthew 23, 11, it says, Matthew 23, hmm. when the king came, that isn't the passage I thought it was. I have no clue what I was supposed to say there. Well, we'll move on from that. 
right. And then and John Piper, he, uh, he helps me out with this next point because this is another hard part. It says in, the, in this verse, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That really confused me when I was studying this because it seems as though God is bestowing on Jesus a name that he did not have previously, and it is the name that is above every name. Um, John Piper helped me to understand that this name that is above every name is Lord or Yahweh, the capital, capitalized Lord, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, you'll see. Um, this is the name above every name because no name is greater than Yahweh. They wouldn't even say Yahweh. There wasn't any uh, consonants in the name. I mean, we don't even know exactly how to spell it with vowels. But this is the name that is above every name. So he gives him the name that is above every name, but wouldn't he have already been God beforehand? And the answer to that is yes, he was God beforehand. He was Yahweh beforehand. And maybe the bestowed on him part was just talking about how he was so low and how he became a servant. When he was risen back to exaltation, he was um, completely given over this, this title. But I will say that I don't fully understand. But what I do know is that whenever Jesus died on the cross and whenever he was risen again and he saved sinners from their sins, he completed his messianic role. He completed, he was Messiah. He was known as the anointed one, the Christ. He was to come and save his people. And when he died on the cross, he did so. And at that point, he fulfilled his role as Messiah, the anointed one. And, and we see in Revelation, he is the lamb that was slain. He gets all these new names. So this is new. He becomes this new Thing. He was already the Messiah beforehand. He just completes it through the cross in our timeline. And it says that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Uh, Caesar is not Lord. I am not Lord. You are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Very popular verses here. Really good. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it also makes, he also gets them to look at Jesus as an example again, because in the beginning of verse two, it says, looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the standard, he is the example, the founder and perfecter of this faith that we have. And it says that he with joy went to the cross. He endured it. Um, what was this joy? Why, how can you go to a cross with joy? And in Revelation 7, we see the purpose of it all. We see that the joy that was set before him 
was that one day he will be lifted high by all these people clothed in white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. People will be exalting him forever because of his mercy and his love. We can go to Revelation 7 right now. That's my favorite verse. Verse is in the Bible. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, um, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's an incredible verse. And we see the, the change here. There's a slight change from Isaiah 8 when he's on the throne. He's getting worshiped um, by the seraphim. And there's still seraphim here I assume but there's also this great crowd that no one can number all clothed in white all singing praises to him salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb the lamb lamb was slain Jesus was the lamb who died on the cross for us and it's beginning the people who are in the crowd standing there worshiping Jesus know that they are there only because of the sacrifice that was made by Jesus on the cross so they are lifting him up and they are appreciating him for his mercy that he demonstrated. This quality was already with God. He is merciful. He is loving. God is love. But in his movement to earth and humbling himself and dying on the cross for us, he demonstrates how merciful he really is and how much he loves us. And we really get to appreciate that. So when he's on the throne, he's getting appreciated for all his qualities there in Revelation 7. So, and this in the end is all for the glory of God. It says in the last verse of Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, to end the psalm, the song, uh, it says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all for his glory. All the humiliation, everything that is done for the sake of others. This unity, this one mind, this counting others as more significant than ourselves, this dying to ourselves, being poured out, becoming servants, all for the glory of God. And we can know that if we sacrifice ourselves as Jesus has sacrificed himself, not on a cross, but carrying our cross daily, we will know that we, can, that we will be exalted in the end, we'll be given crowns and we'll be in heaven and making praises to God. So, how can I empty myself? How can I become a servant? How can you, how can we do this practically? Uh, I can't tell you to do these certain things. You need to do this, you need to do that. You need to go on a mission trip somewhere. You need to go, um, go to the nursing home or anything like that. Not specifically to be a servant. It's this mindset it's this mindset that you have in any given context. It's this mindset that is, is these glasses I was talking about. It's the way you see the world. It's in these moments whenever you see the need and you meet the need, you become a servant and you treat others as more significant than yourselves. 
instead of feeling awkward and pushing yourself away from the situation because you don't want to get involved in that. You feel greater than that. You don't want to stoop down to that level. You make that stoop because you understand what Jesus did for you, that he made a stoop that we can't even understand. So in those moments where you're inclined to be selfish and you're making up excuses like so that you don't have to do something for someone else. Say, I know this feeling. I get this feeling even while I'm in the driver's seat of my vehicle all the time. Not referring to when I almost ran over that girl. Um, Whenever I'm passing by someone who might need my help, maybe he's walking down the road with a gas tank. Maybe his car is broke down. Um, Whenever... I see somebody on the side of the road asking for money. I don't want to roll down my window and talk to that guy because the people behind me might have to wait an extra second at the stoplight or they might think less of me. And even though I don't even know them, I'll never see them again. I'm not going to make this move. I have this feeling, you know, somebody else. I mean, he'll get help some other way. You know, whenever I've been driving around town all day long and my friend calls me and he wants me to come drive to his house and help him with something, you know, He'll get it done himself. I've been driving around all day long. I don't want to use up the gas. That's gas money. That's time. Uh, I've, I've already wasted enough today. I don't want to do that. So it's crossing those lines that the Spirit pushes you to cross. You'll know whenever you need to do something. You'll feel that, that urge. If you're a Christian, you'll know when you need to be a servant to someone because the Spirit that's within you is a part of God just as much as Jesus and the Father And Jesus is the example, and he became a servant for us, as we've talked about. So we'll know, and it's crossing those lines, it's making those active um, pursuits of servitude to others. And once you cross that line, once you get the, you start doing these small things, you start serving at Dare to Care, you start helping that guy that's on the road, you start doing these different things, you start having a conversation with someone who's struggling, you add Jesus to that conversation, things start becoming easier. You'll start crossing more lines. The Spirit will push you further, but we are so prone in our flesh to do our own thing, and we're just staying back in the same rhythms. We're not moving forward in many ways. You know, whenever you go to, you're thinking about buying these new pair of shoes, you're thinking about buying this new gun or whatever else it is you want to buy. Um, You could think about spending that money on something else because there's so many different people who have needs around you, so many people that are uh, maybe paying medical bills, maybe can't afford to buy their kids these things for school, and that's just in our community. I mean, there's needs all around the world there's, I mean, we only want to get started talking about the needs that are in India and Africa and all these different places where people have nothing. And just start thinking about active ways that I can serve other people because those people, those people out there right now in the world that is dark right now, not literally dark, but spiritually dark, there's people out there who are dying right now There's people out there who do not know Jesus. There's uh, a vast majority who do not know Jesus. And they, I would say, are included in this treat others more significant than yourselves. 
Jesus treated those people who were dying as more significant than himself. He knew that without him dying on a cross, that we would never inherit eternal life, that we would never um, stand before his throne. And he wanted to treat us with respect that we didn't deserve. And so we should also go forth and reach those people who are dying, currently dying and going to hell because they're more significant than ourselves. We're supposed to have that mindset. We're supposed to be like Jesus. And they are in need. They are in more need than any person that has um, a limited amount of money, any person that has to walk to the nearest gas station. They are in an eternal need, and there's only a limited amount of time, as we all know. So I pray that after we leave this building tonight, the example of Christ will be more than just a hymn and a letter, and that it will shape the way we think and that we live. It was the intention that uh, Paul had when he wrote the letter to the Philippians um, to understand this example and to let it change them and be more united, be in one accord with one another and go out and make a difference for the world. So I just hope that we can continually look at this, this, um, this song here, this hymn is the word I'm looking for. We can continue to look at this hymn and understand what Jesus did for us, where he came and how he was exalted and how he's calling us to do the same. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this hymn. Thank you so much for providing Paul with the words and the spirit that led him to include this in the letter to the Philippians. And I pray that we can take it seriously. I pray that you will bless us with your spirit and that you will bless us and give us a motivation and ambition, a selfless ambition to reach the world and to reach those who are dying and to be united as a church in one mind and use that one mind to serve and make things happen in Fairdale and beyond. And I thank you so much for this opportunity and this, these people in this church And I pray that you will bless us tonight in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Help us to have a right mind and just think about you and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.